Welcome to Talking Precision Medicine, the podcast in which we discuss the future of healthcare and health technology and how advances in data science are fueling the next industrial revolution. In this episode 26, our host, Raphael, sits down with Harry Glorikian. Harry is an investor, author, podcaster, and veteran of the health tech industry. Harry walks us through his latest book, The Future You, and expounds on the ways that wearable devices, personal health data, and artificial intelligence are changing healthcare as we know it. Come on in and have a listen. So thank you all for joining today. Our guest is Harry Glorkey, and Harry is an author, an investor, a veteran of the biotech industry. Um, he wears a lot of hats. So Harry, I would ask you, if you introduce yourself at a cocktail party, you remember those things. Um, we used to go to cocktail parties. How do you introduce yourself? <laughs> Um, you know, venture partner first, where is, you know, that's where I spend the day, my day job and then try to write books and, uh, you know, host my own podcast. And, uh, that keeps me in touch with people like you and abreast of details that are going on. That makes my investing that much better. Wonderful. I want to come back to the investing because I want to talk about the landscape of, of innovation, but I see one of your books, um, hovering over your right shoulder, the future you. And I was hoping that you could um, tell us a little bit about the future you. First of all, what's it about and, and what inspired you to write it? So what inspired me to write it was, you know, how quickly things are changing and how little people understand how things are changing or how they can incorporate things into their life. So the book before this, which was Moneyball Medicine, was written more for someone like you, very knowledgeable about the space and sort of keeping up with what's going on and what's happening you know, new. This book, The Future You, is written for the average person, really sort of detailing out uh, what's happening in what areas of technology and how they can incorporate it into their lives to improve health and wellness. So it covers everything from uh, wearables to genomic or genetic testing and how they should think about it or ask questions or utilize it to sort of manage their health better. Talk to us a little bit about the, the challenge of writing for such different audiences. So the future you, you know, at least in the, the subtitle, it's about artificial intelligence in particular. That's one of your, your key topics. I feel like there isn't a more misunderstood topic out there. I mean, except perhaps COVID safety protocols. So, so how, do, how do you address sort of a layman's audience for something so complicated? So I, I, I took one section of the book and I tried to explain AI and how it's used in everyday use. And then there's actually the uh, periodic table of AI that I used in, in there as a, a graphic to show like, here are all the different parts. And artificial intelligence mm-hmm. is this catch-all phrase that catches all these pieces underneath it and tried to put it into terms that they could understand. Or um, whenever I give a talk, I always tell people like, did you do a Google search? Did you use Netflix? Did you use Siri? Well, those are powered by a form of AI in the background. And so people sort of understand it enough, Mm -hmm. um, but don't necessarily want to get into the weeds, um, Mm. all the uses. And that's usually enough to pique their interest so that they feel that they're not unfamiliar with it. Mm -hmm. And then they they move on to the things that are going to impact their, their daily lives or their daily decisions. So the future you starts, uh, you land the reader kind of in the middle of COVID-stricken Manhattan. 
And you do this very effectively, I think, to kind of illustrate what could have been or the potential of wearables and biomedical data and AI. Tell us, in your view, how have these technologies kind of risen to the challenge of the pandemic and you know, how are they poised to do more going forward? It's funny because I gave a talk about this this morning to a, a group of, a ladies group. And uh, I was explaining to them, like, if it wasn't for data analytics and how quickly we've moved the technologies forward, we would have never had a vaccine at the rate that we moved. So I think on that front, we did exceptionally well. I think from a wearables perspective, we probably gave us the time to do a trial where we could not have planned it. If we, if we had tried to do the trial, we would have never right. been successful, right? But we were able to try things out and see things like, you know, the aura ring or, you know, um, being able to see your temperature five days ahead of time, sort of moving up the Apple watch being able to detect, you know, changes in heartbeat that would have indicated, you know, early onset of potential COVID. Uh, but these are indicators of physiological changes that you can now sort of start to do your trials around it. And, and people now believe what, how you're thinking about this because you've got uh, some proof points. I think some of the other technologies like, you know, listening to a cough and being able to tell it's COVID or not, not so sure those worked as, as well as we would like. Telemedicine, however, you know, we both know how quickly that has grown into its modern stage. Mm -hmm. And I think now it's poised for the next stage of growth, which would be including medical records and superimposing some AI on there that could highlight to the physician what they need to look for, or mm -hmm. ultimately connecting those to wearables so that you can monitor somebody when they're not in your office. I see you're wearing a, a few wearables. Do you want to tell us about the ones you've, you've got on? And I don't know that he gets paid folks to, to promote these, but you know, he, he's a believer. <laughs> no, so. no, no, not at all. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. It's funny. I went out with my friends for a burger and one of the guys goes, what the hell's that ring on your finger? And I said, well, it's my newest sort of gadget. I'm, I'm trying it out because you can't lecture on them and you can't um, really understand them if you're not using them, looking at the data and understanding mm -hmm. how it's interacting. And so I've got my Apple Watch, which I, I truly do think of as a uh, data ingestion device or a data aggregation uh, device, because mm -hmm. then it uses a separate app to do something you want it to do. This side is, is the Whoop Band, which is uh, actually a local Boston company. And I think about this one more as a coach for working out. It'll mm -hmm. tell me when I should not work as hard or work mm -hmm. harder. Um, and then the Aura Ring, I've been trying it out. More around, I'm, I'm very interested in the temperature function mm -hmm. and also some of the sleep functions. And they, mm -hmm. they all three of them tell you something a little bit different. I will tell you right now, none of them correlate. They will, well, all three of them will not tell you the same information. If I have one night of sleep, all three of them are different, which I find fascinating. And then I also have an eight sleep bed, which also gives me a a set of data. And I look at them every morning to see like which ones are doing what. And I adjust, I make micro adjustments to my life to see which ones right. move the needle. Well, at, at risk of getting into the weeds for the nerds like me on the, um, you know, listening in the audience, what you just described, I think is emblematic of some of the challenges in advancing these technologies, which is data, whether collected in a quote controlled kind of clinical trial setting or from the real world, or even from a laboratory often don't jive. And, and so 
what do you see, you know, either in your lecturing or maybe, you know, from the venture standpoint, as some of the kind of interesting potential solutions to making sense of all these data? It's, we're talking about a lot of data if you stick a ring on every person out there. Um, but if everyone's also wearing a watch and those things don't agree, you know, we have to figure out what truth is. Yeah, I would say that things like um, heart rate and so forth seem to be consistent across the devices. At least on that mm-hmm. front, we, we seem to mm-hmm. have reached uh, a meeting of the sensors, let's say. Sleep, that depends on the algorithm that somebody wrote on the back end. And as they're making adjustments, mm-hmm. you can almost see that when a new update comes out, right, that something mm-hmm. changes uh, accordingly. The papers that I've read seem to indicate the most accurate sleep tracking wearable was the Fitbit. Now, I'm waiting to see the latest versions where somebody's wearing all the sleep gear plus the device and matching it up accordingly to see if the latest update, say, to the Whoop matches, Mm -hmm. you know, closer to the Fitbit. But these are all, I I look at these and, and, and think they're all in that progressive early stage of where we'd like them to be. Mm hmm. And I don't think that they're, you know, realistically speaking, that far off. I can see that within the next you know, year or two years, all of these will be mm-hmm. fairly right. accurate for the most part, right? And the beauty of these technologies is I'm not looking for that one data point. In other words, is it, it isn't that one laboratory analysis that comes up with one number. Mm-hmm. It's a 24-7 view of an individual where, you know, you now have the iceberg of data underneath and you can see the anomalies that are happening and I can tell you, if I have that glass of wine late at night, they mm-hmm. all go in one direction. If I eat mm-hmm. late at night, they all go, right? Right. They may not be at the same exact levels, but they do directionally move in the right direction. Got it. You know, the, the future you is, is meant to help people think about how to use technology to be healthier. Um, do you see a, a world in which we're all, you know, wearing monitors of, of at least for these sort of fundamental physiological processes? You know, I'll go so far as to say, I think it would be foolish for people in the future not to have some sort of early warning system that they mm-hmm. wear to identify trends. Now, I always say to myself, you know, you go to your doctor and you say, yeah, it hurts right here, but it doesn't hurt right now, right? It's like taking your car in and saying mm-hmm. it's making a noise, but it doesn't make the noise. Whereas right. if you're monitoring these things regularly, you know, I can go in front of my doctor and show him six months of longitudinal data. The beauty is, is when he looks at the graph, he can mm-hmm. immediately pick out any bad spot because the human brain is very good at seeing pattern. But yeah. if it's only that one time that I go into his office, if you and I made a clinical trial result on one data point, the FDA would kick us out, right? We need a right. longitudinal view and enough data points to then make some decision and I think these devices are moving us in that direction. Hmm. So, you know, one of the, the trends I've noticed uh, is kind of an unprecedented consolidation of maybe what people would think of traditional tech companies getting into healthcare. You know, big announcements almost weekly from Microsoft and obviously Google and, and Apple have various products and things like that. How do you see the role of big tech companies in kind of moving us towards digitally enabled healthcare. And and then I'm going to ask you the same thing about startups, but I I want to start with kind of the the brand names of tech companies. Oh, I think they're accelerating the pace, right? They're enabling 
high quality sensors at very reasonable prices that they're pushing out to the general population. And if you look at some of the business models, they're enhancing their wearable and the wearable isn't how they make their money. In other words, Apple isn't making its money. It's not charging me for what it's doing on the health side, right? It Mm -hmm. wants me to wear the watch and it wants me to subscribe to its ecosystem. So the business models are different for them to want to play in that, in that space. They're also very good at high velocity data, large amounts of data, being able to make sense of it. And it's funny, if you think about it, they're learning on mass amounts of data before they decide what they want to step into from a health perspective. When you and I start a company, we're in the health area from day one. So the learning, our learning is is a much shorter period of time. We don't get to play. Whereas Apple and some of these other companies that aggregate all this data get to see, hey, do I see a digital biomarker that I can pick on and move forward or somebody that I can partner with to sort of move something forward, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And then because you know you you are a, a venture investor, you probably get to see a lot of pitch decks of early stage companies that are trying to solve solve this problem. What do you see as some of the, the maybe um, harder unsolved problems that you think startups may actually find the solution to? So encryption, being able to move information that's secure, uh, mm-hmm. that's where I'm seeing some very interesting startups move in that space. Blockchain applications, I'm seeing some interesting applications in that space of uh, not necessarily blockchain when you think about Bitcoin, but where Mm -hmm. we can have a way to agree on something within a smaller uh, group set. I'm seeing uh, CRISPR applications in that area, um, data analytics around that area, image analysis is moving mm-hmm. quite rapidly as we've seen with companies like Page AI getting the first FDA approval. Um, so there are many areas where I see the smaller companies, you know, really knocking on the door of the big ones because um, mm-hmm. they're moving much faster. I mean, you know, you know this from your experiences, we don't have the right data analytics or data scientists like falling off trees. Right. So if you can put together the right team, you, your performance can be you know, better than some of these big, large companies that may not have that DNA or team that's set up to do that from day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it's requires a lot of cross-functionality and domain knowledge to, to do this well. And it could be a hard thing to pivot into if you're not pretty deliberate about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm always asking people like, you know, what's your background? What did you do? Um, Mm -hmm. And trying to find the person that has those, you know, oh, yeah, I understand biology. And oh, boy, the computer science and, you know, like, well, you're a rare bird these days. I mean, hopefully we'll graduate more of them. But I see the uh, new companies, especially migrating towards new models as the ones that are going to threaten the status quo the most. Because right. the infrastructure is allowing for these new models to take hold. Now, one thing that comes as, I guess, a consequence of having a lot of this innovation being driven by tech companies is, you know, in, invariably your data has to live somewhere. And maybe 
when I get to asking this in the form of a question, the answer may have to do with the blockchain you had mentioned. But how do we think about data privacy and, and who actually owns the data? And how do we either persuade people in general to be more trusting of our tech overlords? Or, or maybe that's not the answer. And, and we do need a way to actually revert the data in a very private way back to each individual person. Sorry, that, that's a very messy question, but, but it is also kind of a messy topic. Like, um, maybe you can help us think about where to begin thinking about that. Yeah, and I don't even, I, you know, I don't know <clears throat> the answer, but if you look at see the, sort of the Affordable Care Act, it does say the data is the property of the patient. Now, the hospital system gets to keep a copy of it, right, for various reasons, but it is the mm-hmm. property of the patient and they can request that. And I think it's 72 hours they have to get access to their data. From a sharing perspective, I'm seeing a lot on the federated learning side, but also some encryption methods that uh, one of them I was looking at was two sides, uh, both sides of data are encrypted. They never unencrypt, but they're able to learn from each other and then disassociate. And so great way to sort of have your algorithm learn from a data set. It only gets used for that one purpose. It dissociates and there's no data exhaust or somebody hacking into it would be able to find. It also sort of enables things like the confidential web, which is sort of where we're going next with, with all of this. But mm-hmm. there are also you know, companies that are trying to do things like, I'll compensate you for your data. It's a great idea. I mean, if you start to add up how much you're being compensated, it's probably on the order of pennies. So I don't know what the patient is really getting out of it. But you know, privacy is one of those, I believe in it. But if we're going to advance medicine, I think there has to be some aggregation of central repositories that groups can gain access to and be able to use in a reasonable fashion right? Yeah. As you and I both know, your data is only as good as the N, right? Right. And if you have 10 and the other guy has 10 and the other guy has 10, <laughs> 30 would be limited by what we can do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And th- this actual, this point was, was echoed by some of the, the big pharma R&D leaders during a JP Morgan interview last week, where even these guys who, who have access to much larger data sets than, than your average startup or, or small biotech, we're saying we need better ways of putting all this data together, making it centralized. You know, some countries like Estonia, which granted is relatively small and small in number and also in size, but has been very tech aware, have done a very good job over decades of getting everybody into a digitized healthcare system and collecting those information. But the U.S. is pretty unwieldy. How do you, do you see the government or the private sector being the kind of nucleating agent, does it help centralize some of these information? Unfortunately, I think it's going to have to be the government that drives some of this. I mean, if you look at the history of how the healthcare system evolved and insurance evolved in the United States, you and I couldn't make more worse decisions if we actually like tried. That said, I think, you know, uh, if you're going to do something on scale to move the country forward, it's got to be at a governmental level to be able to do that. I think the smaller companies that are providing the technology for encryption and other stuff can move it forward faster so that it can be done in a secure way. That doesn't mean they don't have Mm -hmm. a role. But I think the government should start to push for more centralized data repositories that we can access. I see small companies getting scale, you know, four or five million patients, but you're still only limited to whatever you can capture from those patients, that, you know, as, as you're 
either getting streaming data and or patient record data. And it's a fraction of what you need to really move certain programs forward. I mean, I think China has unfortunately a leg up on us in that capacity where they can mandate, you know, all information goes to one central repository and, you know, okay, how many CT scans do you need? Like, here's your repository that you get to play with. And that's going to put, you know, our companies at a disadvantage over time. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a good point. And, and I'm a little bit pessimistic only given the amount of kind of discord and division in the country that, I mean, even if you just look at COVID vaccination rates, the, the odds of everyone willingly saying, yes, the government can have all my healthcare data, there are going to be a lot of holdouts, put it that way. You know, it's funny. I always I talk, say to people, do you have a cell phone? Yeah. Government already sure. knows uh, tons about you. Right? That you don't even realize what they have. Right? All that stuff um, you're putting on Facebook. Great. But yeah, people don't understand, like with a few keystrokes, like I can, I can really understand a lot about you more than you probably know about yourself. So uh, I, I think there are ways to do it. I, I totally agree that the generally the between the Congress and the Senate, their understanding of technology and its impact is mm-hmm. woefully low. And technology is moving fast enough, I mean, at an exponential rate that if you're not keeping up with it, you're, you're behind um, yeah. in a big way. In a somewhat related topic, so technology almost always promises to democratize X, to make something more generally available, accessible, or cheaper, you know, to the masses. When it comes to healthcare or access to healthcare, how do you see sort of AI-enabled health tech advances democratizing things? And, and where, what are the ways in which expensive new gadgets might go the other way instead of making things more generally available might actually exacerbate discrepancies? So with a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at right now, we're seeing, you know, for instance, like this AliveCore sensor that I'm holding, I think when it first came out, it was probably a couple hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Now it's like $80 and it does from a software perspective, much, much more than it did when it first came out. And so I'm seeing that in a lot of other sensor technologies as we move to edge enabled AI, uh, there's going to be a lot more done closer to the, to the patient. So I expect to see the prices either condemn or stabilize at a lower rate, but the technology be able to do vastly more at the patient, either at home or a CVS, as compared to when you and I would have to go in and there's some fancy instrument that needs to do what it's mm-hmm. doing. Imaging is becoming, you know, moving even faster when you look at dermatology or ophthalmology. When it comes to, you know, moving the needle as far as separating the masses, you know, I, I always think first generation tech might do that, but very quickly we see that it doesn't work for the tech companies. Mm-hmm. They need to get mass adoption. So mm-hmm. I see them pushing the technologies down. I do see, however, from a data and AI perspective that there will be concentration of power among different tech companies or different companies that have a leg up. Mm-hmm. I always say to people, they're like, oh, you know, we've got how many drug discovery companies. And so I'm like, that's great. How many Googles are there? So we are moving in that direction, which is, you know, would be a lively debate and discussion to have with a group. But I don't think we need as many companies to do the things we really want to do as we go forward. Well, I mean, the the history of, of technology, the history of the economy is to see disruption, but then consolidation and, and have these happen in sort of asynchronous cycles. So I think, I think what you're describing is, is both what's happening, but also will continue to happen. 
lots of small, hard problems solved by small guys. And then it may not be Google that delivers the ultimate wearable, but we might already know the name of the company that does. Yep. And I think it's going to happen at a faster and faster pace only because the turns are happening at Mm -hmm. a faster and faster pace, right? You know, we used to launch an instrument at Applied Biosystems and, you know, okay, that would have a four or five year, right? And then the next one would come out. Now it seems like it's, I mean, uh, not to exaggerate, but like six months increments, right? Where mm-hmm. <laughs> something, something new is coming out or we're able to make a software change or a microprocessor change. You know, if I'm not mm-hmm. reading every day, I'm not keeping up. For me, one of the, the most underrated or perhaps overlooked potential health solutions is simply preventative medicine. It's not something our, our the U.S. insurance system is set up to really do well or to incentivize. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the kinds of technology you've described us today could really be well-purposed towards preventative medicine or, or lifestyle modification. Now, you mentioned some of the ones you're wearing around sleep and you know Whoop to help you with your, your fitness. What, what are some of the other trends you see in, in, I don't know if you want to call it preventative medicine or proactive health, that oh. side of lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, look, I can tell you, and I write about it in the book is, you know, my watch basically at one point being me and said, have you ever been diagnosed with sleep apnea? Mm-hmm. And ironically, right about that time I had gone in for a sleep study. Mm-hmm. So I said, yes. So if these technologies can identify these debilitating long-term issues that mm-hmm. then can be managed up front, you can either eliminate some of those problems or push them out a lot farther. If you're wearing mm-hmm. a CGM and you understand where you're going with your, you know, managing your insulin and glucose based on what you eat, can you push out early onset of diabetes, which more people have than they know that they have. And so these chronic issues that cause destabilization of your physiology, which mm-hmm. ultimately lead to something breaking down. If you don't change the oil in your car, you're asking, like, eventually there will be a problem. These technologies give an individual insight into how to manage their health and wellness better. That said, you know, those companies then need to figure out how to nudge someone to have them respond appropriately. I still don't think you need 100% to move in the right direction. You need a certain percentage and it makes a significant difference in cost and everything else and economic productivity. I think that's that's an excellent point. One of the, the things that concerns me about tech adoption, but especially, especially when it's something a bit niche like healthcare, is, is just kind of user education. And I know that's part of what your book aims to do. It aims to educate readers about what's out there and what they can do to use these technologies better. What are some other solutions to helping make sure that these technologies reach, we'll call it the community setting? So maybe non-coastal cities, n- not major health hubs. How do you think we can really kind of push the advantages of some of these tech more generally? Well, I think if you look at the Affordable Care Act is moving people, is moving the system towards outcome-based care. So Mm -hmm. outcome-based care automatically drives people towards efficiencies and adoption of different technologies. Just like in in a normal business, if I want to compete be profitable against my competitors, right? There's a natural competitive environment in healthcare. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really exist on the provider side. But if you're paying for outcomes, it drives people in that direction. And I've been Mm -hmm. sort of tracking that for the past, whatever, eight, nine, 10 years. And so you see more and more adoption of, you know, you'll read stories where an insurance company will say, oh, we'll give you an Apple Watch and we'll drop your premium or your health insurer will 
will drop your premium if you have this wearable or you, you know, walk this much or whatever, and we can track it. And so you're seeing more and more adoption of these sort of technologies into the space to the point where some groups may say, hey, we'll send you the blood pressure monitor or whatever. You keep it at home and you, you monitor yourself so that we can watch mm-hmm. it from afar. And there's been some interesting studies about Geisinger did one with 35,000 type 2 diabetes patients, where by keeping them in the right zone, by utilizing basic technology, not even advanced technology, and calling people on the phone, they were able to decrease comorbidities by, I think it was 25%. Mm -hmm. You know, when I talked to the CEO, he's like, money was raining from the sky as an insurer, because we're self-insured, if we don't have to be triaging those patients constantly. And so... I think you're going to see the business model start to come out to, if we can keep these people healthy, it's Mm -hmm. actually much more profitable than treating them when they're sick. I mean, what are we going to do when, let's assume for a second, liquid biopsy achieves its ultimate goal of early screening, at least for a certain number of cancers. We're really good at managing cancers early. We're horrible at managing them late. Can we either make some of those situations a chronic disease or, or be able to figure out how to eliminate them, that would make a huge difference. And I think these technologies can have a profound impact on the system. My biggest complaint is always, are the individuals in the system willing to change? And mm-hmm. will the economics of the system allow the change to happen, right? Because mm-hmm. if it's profitable to do the other thing, it's really hard to get people to change. Speaking of profits, I, I want to be mindful of your time. Harry and I actually met several years ago, kind of in passing between, uh, we'll call them receptions at, at JP Morgan um, Healthcare Conference San Francisco. Obviously, this year was the second year in a row. It was virtual. Harry, how did you spend your JP Morgan week? Were you tuning into the various panels and coverage, or, or were you focused more on, on your own work on the East Coast? I was focused on work and then as needed, you know, you, you tune into the ones that are recorded unless you have to show up live because they're not going to have something, but you know, you watch the ones that you find that are interesting, which for me is, you know, various ones that I like, I like to keep up on. I like to watch, Mm -hmm. hear what the big guys are doing just to get an idea of where they are. But then I like, I like to watch a lot of those emerging companies that are sort of coming up with that next data driven opportunity. but. I will admit doing it virtually makes it tough. You watch one or two and then you're like, oh, Jesus. Like, uh, you know, there's only so many of these you can just sit and watch Mm -hmm. uh, without human interaction. So uh, I probably died off a little bit quicker than I would have liked to have been there in person. The magic is in the serendipity. It's in in the meeting people between receptions and that sort of thing, right? Oh, yeah. you know, running into the right person in the hallway can mean the difference between getting a deal done and not. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Quick lightning round to close up. Just a few last questions. What are you reading today? Sure. What And what should we be reading? What am I reading today? Um, I'm not reading any books, unfortunately. I'm reading more, um, you know, papers and, uh, you know, new articles science. about what's coming up. Yeah, science. That's fair. That's fair. And we should be reading the future you. So I know the answer to that question. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And if you read it, I do hope you enjoy it. Okay. uh, Next question. Something I'm really interested in. Are there any great devices or monitors that are related to things like diet and what you're eating? 
Yes. So I've used the January AI CGM, but mm -hmm. there's also, and I haven't tried it, but the levels CGM, mm -hmm. but the January AI system, like in four weeks, the AI system learned enough that I didn't need to be using the CGM. It sort of, I could tell it what I was about mm. to eat and it would. CGM predict. is continuous glucose monitor. Yes. That would predict, you know, my spike and curve was going to look like. And I learned that there are certain foods such as Korean bibimbap that I should stay away from mm -hmm. because it not just spikes me, it stays up for a long period of time, which doesn't help energy levels. I learned sort of what to stay away from and what not to stay away from. Got it. And uh, last question, should entrepreneurs who are, who are listening to this, should they reach out to you if they're working on companies in, in the space you've described as your interest area? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I'm totally interested in the intersection of data and biology. That's a, a wide swath. So I'm, I'm happy to talk to people. I will say to people, like the first cut that I do is who's the team, who's working on it, assessing, do they know what they're doing? What's the idea? Is it going to be big enough, right? where right. we can see sort of a shift. And then if those two things sound good, then it's worth moving on to the next stages. Yeah. Absolutely. Harry, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat today. This has been incredibly uh, illuminating for me. I may work in the industry, but as you said, data and biology is a big space. So uh, I learned a lot today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I hope you stay safe and healthy in this interesting time we're in. Same to you. Talk to you soon. Take care. This has been episode 26 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or a review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.